Well, if you're a guest with us this evening, I just have to tell you something that everyone else already knows, that I'm a complete nerd. And, and part of my nerdiness involves reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy at least once every other year. And uh, I'm really excited about this winter because they're also making The Hobbit into a movie. I don't know if you heard that, but I'm, I'm excited for that. And so I've been wanting to read The Hobbit to kind of get ready for the film to refresh my memory. Uh, but I wanted to read it with the kids, and I think it's just a little bit too heavy for them. So the cool thing is that Ryan and Christine Wasserman bought an illustrated version. It's a little bit abridged, but it has the, all the main points of The Hobbit in these great comic book style pictures. And we've been reading that to the girls at night, and I just, I'm really proud because they're loving it. Um, and Sophia even said the other night, Gollum, Gollum, I mean, she's doing all this stuff. And, uh, and the cool thing about going back and reading The Hobbit or even The Silmarillion and things like that is that it adds such a layer, I think, of, of meaning and depth and texture to the later books, to The Lord of the Rings. And I was thinking about that, about how history does that for our lives. It adds meaning and context for our lives. I think History, knowing our history grounds us. It reminds us, and we need this reminder, frankly, that we are not islands unto ourselves, like the history didn't start with you and me. Um, it can affirm, I think, history can affirm that people's philosophies and choices that went before us have an effect on us today. And if you just play that logic out a little bit, it's likely that our thoughts and our choices and actions are going to affect generations to come. Which, of course, uh, history then roots us and grounds us and binds us together. And doesn't that sound a lot like the Force? So it must be a good thing. Um, so Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, uh, writes uh, about memory. And he says, much of what the Bible demands can be comprised in one word. Remember. Now, I confess that when I think of that word remember, I immediately think of recalling facts and events and, and people and, and, and names and places. And certainly that's, that's recall and that's part of remembering. But Walkie says that remembering is more significant than just recall. He says that remembering is literally to reassemble or to bring together members of a body. Walkie makes the point that the opposite of remember is not to forget, but to dismember. Okay, And so it's our nature, I think, as human beings to be fragmented, to kind of think that, uh, or to kind of think with only one perspective or one cultural bias. It's almost impossible to get outside of ourselves when we're thinking about things. But when we remember, we bring back together all the parts of the larger story. Now, of course, as people who are striving to follow Jesus, we are also people of a story, or people of the book, we are called. Uh, we're not just some isolated church in the Lettered Streets neighborhood, uh, and we're not just some people who live uh, from the New Testament and Gospels forward, which is maybe my pretentious pet peeve against those little New Testament Psalms and Proverbs Bible. They, they almost imply, well, you don't need the rest of the Bible, which I say, phooey, no, we do need it. We're part of a, of a much larger story. And that's why as your pastor, I think I'm doing a, a good deed by being committed to preaching in the Hebrew scriptures from early September right up through Advent every year. And for the past few years, we've been in a series in the fall called In the Beginning. And it's been a series in the book of Genesis. It's called In the Beginning because Genesis in Hebrew is Bereshit, which means beginning or book of origins. It's the account of the beginning of life, 
of human beings' relationship with the living God and God's rescue mission to redeem all of humanity and all of creation. Now, two years ago, we covered most of Genesis 1 through 11, which many experts say those chapters, Genesis 1 through 11, cover more chronology, more years, more history than Genesis 12, all the way through the rest of the Bible, all the way up past 2012. There's just a lot of years there. In the beginning... God. There was nothing. And God spoke creation, the universe, the world into existence. The book of Genesis isn't concerned with how God did those things or how long it took God to do those things. But the point is that Genesis is trying to make is that God did those things. He's the creator. And he created human beings, male and female. And he made us, male and female, in his image. And that means that he created us to reflect his good character and his love and his presence to the rest of creation on earth. He placed the first people in the Garden of Eden and he charged them. He gave them vocation. He gave them a job to rule over all things as caretakers and sub-creators. And when our ancestors were tempted by the the serpent, they they thought that, that maybe they knew more about life than God did. That maybe he wasn't really looking out for their best interests, so they took matters into their own hands. They questioned God's intention toward them, and they were expelled from the garden. And one of those first stories uh, of their expulsion is we see God immediately blessing them, clothing them, and taking good care of them. So as soon as we see human sin enter the world, we see God being gracious. So basically, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, minus the part about being created in God's image, and minus the good character of Noah, uh, we see story after story about people rebelling against God. So if we conclude anything from Genesis 1 through 11, it's this. God is great, people have serious problems, and God is very gracious. In a nutshell. Okay. Now, at the end of Genesis 11 and the beginning of 12, we are introduced to Abraham and his family. It's still a story about God. And once again, God initiates relationship. He initiates contact with his people. And he he chooses to enter the world in the flesh. He enters the fray, the mess, incarnate. Jesus came in the flesh, incarnate. And I think that... What the Bible story is telling us here is that God also chooses to work via carne, through the flesh, through people, through basic families like Abraham's. In chapter 12, God reveals his plan to rescue the entire world through a family. And Abraham and Sarah are chosen to leave their pagan land of Ur and to travel a thousand miles towards uh, the distant land that God promised them, the land of Canaan. The promise is that God is going to bless this family and their descendants so much that they are then going to bless other nations. And other nations are going to say, wow, this is great. Who's your God? I want in. I want to worship that God too. That was the original plan. Now chapters 12 through 22 show the ups and downs of Abraham and Sarah's life, the sins and the saintly acts. And above all, these chapters are once again the story of God's faithfulness through the obstacles of childlessness 
sin, threats from foreign kings, doubts, the birth of the son, and then the near sacrifice of that son. And today, we are going to pick up the story in chapter 23. Abraham and Sarah are very old. Sarah passes away. And yet, they are nomads on their own. And instead of having a large family, they have one unmarried son. So here we pick up the tale of Abraham and Sarah, the story of God and the people of God. I want to ask you to stand as I read uh, Genesis 23. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kariath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying, Hear us, my lord, you're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose, and then he bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it's your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight... Hear me, and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give to me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abraham in the, learning, in the hearing of his sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of the city. And he, and he was saying... No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What's that between me and you? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the cave and the field which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field that were within the confines of its border, they were all deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who were at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mapela, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. Father, I thank you for even what appears to be just a pedestrian story, just a story about life. I'm thankful that you care about the things that don't seem spectacular in our lives either. The births, the deaths, the business transactions. But I'm also thankful, Lord, that this 
story drips with your fingerprints and your faithfulness and your goodness. I pray that you would encourage us today and make us more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a little bit anticlimactic, Sarah goes to her grave with one unmarried son, an ancient husband, and no land. She goes to her grave without any kind of permanence, no fulfillment of the promise, and yet, as I mentioned before, I think the story is just dripping with faith and with hope and theological significance. And here's what I want to do. Uh, these stories are, are, are just so foreign to us, the culture, the language. So what I want to do is work through the story with you uh, in brief. And then I want to go back and I want to make three observations that I think then have implications for how uh, we might live our lives a little bit differently uh, because of the story. Okay, so let's enter the text. The text is uh, in three main sections. And the first section is verses 1 through 4, at least that's how I break it up. And we learn that Sarah has died. Abraham is in mourning, and we're introduced to a problem. That Abraham needs to find a burial site for Sarah. Of particular note, uh, at the time of her death, is her age. We learn that she's 127 years old when she dies, which is an interesting detail. Uh, in, she could have definitely lived that long. Uh, stranger things have happened in the Bible. But this is also after uh, the, the Lord tells Mo, uh, Noah that people aren't going to live past 120 years. So it's kind of interesting. Um, we also know a little bit about uh, ancient Near Eastern numerology. And so... Uh, for example, the, the year 100 represents great age in general. Uh, the number 20 represented beauty in the ancient world. And the number 7 represents blamelessness before God. So that could be one way to interpret it. could be that she was just 127 years old. But whatever way we interpret this text, we know that Sarah is very honored among women. She is the only woman in all of Scripture to, at her time of death, have her age mentioned. And she is known throughout Scripture as the mother of faith. Verse 2 tells us that Sarah died in Hebron. And there's an, there's an added detail twice in this passage that Hebron is in the land of Canaan. Now, if you are an original reader of this text and you're an ancient Near Eastern person, that's like saying... Uh, Woodland Park Zoo is in the town of Seattle, which is in Washington. Like, if you're from Seattle, you know where Woodland Park Zoo is. You don't need to say it's in Seattle or it's in Washington. So why this added detail that Hebron is in Canaan? I think the detail is added there because the author wants us to know that Sarah and Abraham are in the promised land. And he is about to get a piece of that land that was promised to them. More on that later. So Abraham rises to speak to the inhabitants of the land, uh, the so-called sons of Heth, and he asks them for a place to bury Sarah. Now why does he need permission? Why can't he just, you know, he's a nomad, can't he just take care of this by himself? Um, well, he needs permission because he's a sojourner and an alien. The text tells us that. He's a nomad. He's a foreigner. He wandered in the land, but he had no claim to that land. 
Abraham is looking for a place to bury his dead. Now, that might seem simple enough, just find a plot anywhere, but that's not how things were done in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, oftentimes families, especially wealthy ones like Abraham, would find a cave. And you would put generations of people in that cave, and they would practice what's called a double burial. You would put a, a loved one in there, and then a year or so later, you'd come back when it's just bones, and you'd put the bones in a nice ossuary, and then you might move that to the back of the cave and have the space open for someone else. It was a generational thing. You would pass it down from family member to family member. Well, this leads us into the second section, verses 5 through 16. This whole section is a really fun negotiation. It's a business deal going on in typical ancient New Eastern fashion. Abraham approaches the sons of Heth, declaring, Hey, I'm just a foreigner and an alien among you. Uh, he asks for a place to bury Sarah, and they reply, Hear us, my lord. You're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. Now, what's going on here? Why does it seem like they're flattering Abraham so much? By he, he introduces himself as what he really is, which is a sojourner and an alien in the land. And here the owners of this land are calling him a mighty prince. Well, maybe they've heard about Abraham's special relationship with God. Maybe they recognize that this nomad is also very wealthy, and maybe they attribute that to his closeness with God. In the Hebrew, it's more than just calling him a mighty prince. They actually call him mighty one of God. Whatever their reason for flattering Abraham, they are very, very crafty. You see, in Hebrew, Abraham is asking for possession of the land, not just a gravesite. And they come back and they say, go ahead, we'll give you a plot. And the plot thickens, pun intended. Abraham knows that the common etiquette of the day required that land not pass to foreigners. You weren't supposed to sell uh, tribal land to some nomad who has no stake in the land. Land was worth more than gold, or at least lots of gold, because land represented things. It represented name. It was something you could pass down to your kids. It also produced, like gold you can use once. You can buy something and then it's done. But the land produced fruit, right? And livestock and all of these things. So land was, was highly sought after. Abraham knows that a deal like this is going to have to be made in community. It can't just be a private deal. If it's a private deal, it could always, you know, one of the, the people who sold him the land could always claim, no, we never, we never had this deal. So it had to be in the presence of the community. So, the text says that Abraham rose, and then what did he do? He bowed before the people plural of the land. He calls uh, the community together and he, he calls them to approach a certain man named Ephron. Now the weird thing is that Ephron is in the community. So it'd be like um, if uh, Josh Burdick was the guy I wanted to buy the land from and I go over, people, sons of Heth, hear me. Would you guys talk to Josh? I want to buy his land. Okay, And it's, it's, it's completely out in the open. It's just the way you did things. You had lots of witnesses. And you went through the community in order to make this deal. Now, 
the funny thing is, is Abraham, he's, he might be a foreigner and, and an alien, but he knows exactly what he wants. I want you to approach Ephron for me, and I want the field with the cave near the end of it. Like he knows exactly the parcel he's looking at. And he says, I'll pay full price for it. Now the text adds the detail and actually mentions this twice that all this talking is going uh, is taking place at the city gate and the city gate is legal terminology that's where you, you you did business transaction it's where court cases were were heard so even if they weren't literally at the city gate the presence of the elders were there so it might be the equivalent of um, Josh and I did this transaction over at city hall in the presence of many witnesses that would kind of be the idea so this is an official transaction going on. Well, Ephron, this character with the land and the cave, he's right there in the community. And he counters with his own move, showing his own deft negotiation skills. Oh no, my lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that's in it. In the presence of all the people, I give it to you. Just bury your dead. Sounds like a good deal. Abraham remains polite. But he's not having any of it. See, if he takes that field free of charge, he might be able to bury Sarah there. But as soon as he dies and Ephron dies, Ephron's sons could say, we didn't didn't make this deal with you. Technically, the land would still be owned by Ephron and his sons and their sons. Abraham doesn't want anyone to give him this field and this cave. He wants to buy it. So Abraham counters Again, by offering full price. In the presence of the elders and the people, Ephron is now stuck. So, in typical ancient Near Eastern fashion, in fact, some of the reading I've done says that still, in many places in the, in the uh, in Near East, this is how y- you do things. And, and this is what he says, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What's that between you and me? Well, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. It's seven and a quarter pounds of silver. Okay? And so it'd be like, you know, you're haggling over a used car, and, um, and you want me to name my price. Ah, Jeff, you know, we're friends, man. I mean, what's, what's 10,000 between us? Well, I, basically, I'm naming my price in a way that saves face. Okay? I'm just kind of throwing it out there. And so that's what Ephron does with Abraham. Probably an inflated price. And the transaction concludes uh, the second section of this, and we enter the third, and it's a resolution to Abraham's problem. He needs a tomb for his wife, and Ephron, in section 3, deeds the land over to him for the full price. So Abraham pays a little bit of inflated price, but he gets the deed to the land. It is his land now, his family's land. He can pass it down to Isaac, and so on and so forth. Well, my hope is that by working through the story together, at least in brief, uh, we've been able to, to make a little bit more of this kind of weird cryptic story. Like if you were just, think about if you were just reading that story for your, your quiet time or your daily Bible reading, like, really? Okay, um, he gets a cave. Yeah. So now I'm going to try and show why this might matter to you, okay? <laughs> uh, and I, I want to I turn our attention to three observations. First of all, I want you to notice just kind of the blatant fact that God is not named at all in the story. He's not, he's not in it. All right? On the outside, it's a very secular event. It's a normal human death. It's a normal human mourning. It's a normal human business transaction. And yet, it's deeply faith-filled and theologically significant. 
twice the narrator names the obvious that this tomb and the land Abraham is buying is where? It's in Canaan. It's in the land that God promised him. The story then is a remembering of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would inherit the land. In verse 19, we learn that the cave of Machpelah faces a certain town, and that town is Mamre. Mamre is where God promised promised Sarah that she would have a child in her own age. It's where Sarah laughed at God in disbelief. Later on, she would have a son and name him Isaac, laughter, because of that revelation coming true. Mamre is where Abraham and Sarah hosted God and the angels when they came over for dinner. Mamre is the place where Abraham built an altar in honor of God's faithfulness. It's the place where Abraham interceded before God, where Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah. God was going to destroy that place. He says, what if there's 50 good people in there? Would you destroy? Remember, he interceded for that. That's all, all those memories are in Mamre where this cave of Machpelah overlooks. And I say all of this that it just seems like a secular story. Because place matters. Not because some places are inherently like more holy than other places, but because God intervenes in your life and in my life in places. Memories are formed in places. And places can help us remember. And I just wonder, an implication of this is, do you have any places or keepsakes, or photos, or markers of God's presence in your life. Maybe an old journal that you haven't looked through in recent years. What are some of the markers, the places, the contexts where God has moved in your life that you were once like, that is awesome, God did that, and now you've forgotten. And I think that this text implies it's good to remember those stories of God. Where would you want to be buried? Is there a a sacred place for you, a special place where God moved in your life? One of the implications of this text is that memories have context. Have you remembered lately? Have you thought on God's faithfulness in your life? Where would you be without God in your life? And have you shared those stories? with a friend, with a loved one, with a spouse, with your kids. You know, even working through this text this week, I was amazed at how little of the stories of God in my life I've shared with my kids. Why is that? Why don't we talk about these things more often? That's how the legacy of faith is passed down. A second observation is that Abraham and Sarah were faithful in the little things. I mean, they weren't perfect. Remember, twice Abraham tried to tell other kings that Sarah was his sister because he was afraid for his life. Okay, um, That's pretty darn bad. Uh, Abraham, uh, Sarah doubted God's promise as a child, actually laughed at him. But in the end, they were faithful with the little things. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old gained approval. And from the time Abraham and Sarah obeyed God and moved a thousand miles from their homeland 
They struggled to live by faith. Faith that the God who called them would provide for them. And I think that in the world's eyes, Abraham and Sarah failed. In the world's economy, Abraham and Sarah failed. They were promised a multitude, and they were given one son. They were promised the land, and they ended up with a grave. And yet today, billions of people are reading this story, and we can say to Abraham and Sarah, because of your faithfulness in little things, now we have a faith. Right? That's a legacy. Sometimes just sowing in those little things can make such a difference that, that you can't know uh, the ramifications of. And this is encouraging for me. Because of your faithfulness to your calling, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac got married and he took on your faith. He took on your God. And he had Jacob, who was really screwed up. But eventually Jacob got turned around and he, he took on Yahweh as his God. And he took on the promise. And he had sons who had sons who had David who had sons and sons and sons. And from that, the line of Jesus comes from that little bit of faithfulness. So I think that this text implies the question, are we faithful in the small things? Abraham's business deal secured the land, gave his descendants a place. A marker, a remembrance of God's promises. And in essence, Abraham and Sarah gave their descendants and us a legacy of faith. So I wonder, how might we quit being so obsessed with making a big splash in the world, right? And turn our attention to being faithful in the little things, treating your friends well. Loving our spouse as well. If you have children, passing on those little opportunities of faith. If you don't have kids, but you're part of this church, modeling faithfulness for one another. And as a church, let's be faithful in the little things. The people that God allows us to love. The little things like caring for the sick and the hurting. I'm thinking of uh, Gary Moore going in the middle of the night to, to drive Dave Jones to the ER and back. The little things, the little inconveniences that mean a whole lot. Like training up our children in the faith. I wonder how many, two, four, six, eight volunteers down with our kids right now. Singing songs, telling the stories of faith. As a church, let's be faithful to the little things, being committed to word and sacrament, by listening to our community and serving as God leads, no less and no more. My third observation is how importantly countercultural this story really is. In our world, success is equated with things like power and privilege and permanence, and possessions. I wanted to say pencils or something. I mean, let's keep going with the P's. But it's very materialistic. It's either about stuff or positioning ourselves so we can get more stuff and having control over that stuff. That, that's kind of the world's economy. 
But here, the people with the power and the permanence and the prestige, they're the, one, they're the people of Heth, the sons of Heth, the owners of that land. But who's the one exalted? Who's the one called the, the mighty one of God here? It's the sojourner. It's the alien. It's the faithful man, Abraham and, and Sarah. Abraham was called by God to leave his power and his prestige and his permanence in the land of Ur. He traveled a thousand miles, not by airplane or train, by walking and mules and stuff like that. A thousand miles to a land he didn't know. And certainly, in God's eyes, we are successful not when we are our own gods, but when we are dependent on Him when we live by faith. When we recognize that the world as we know it is not our ultimate goal and not our ultimate home. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Now check this out. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect is God. We are living in the dawn, in the dawn of that promise. Whenever we buy our graves in this life, without having taken hold of the promise of the kingdom, we do so in faith of the kingdom that is coming, of the fulfillment of God's promise to us. That Jesus will bring his kingdom, and that one day we'll be resurrected to glory and eternity through faith. The faith laid by Father Abraham and Mother Sarah. Would you join me in prayer? Again, Father, I thank you for the way that you are present in the little things, in the, the normal actions and rhythms of life. So often we are looking for the spectacular. I thank you, Lord, that you did the spectacular on the cross. That you gave yourself. And three days later, you rose from the grave. You defeated death. Help us, Lord, to play, place our faith in you. To not be afraid to be seen as weak in the world's eyes. So that we can live faithfully to the small things. To be compassionate. To be loving. To be generous. Knowing that you, Father, are the architect of the city, of the land, of the kingdom to come. So help us to live by faith and to pass on that legacy to those who come after us. Amen.